Hey everyone, before we get started, just a quick heads up that registration is now open for the American Craft Spirits Association's annual Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show. We hope you'll join us in Louisville, Kentucky this December 4th through 6th to network, learn, and toast the craft spirits industry. To sign up and take advantage of early bird pricing, head to AmericanCraftSpirits.org. And while you're there, you can also register for a public policy conference in late May. Thanks. I have seen it. Good bourbon can change the world. Good bourbon creates enduring, lasting friendships. Good bourbon uh, can increase one's faith in man and God. Good bourbon uh, creates legendary stories. That's the philosophy behind good bourbon for a good cause. And I see it every day. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Good Bourbon Can Change the World. That phrase is embossed onto the back of each bottle of bourbon from Garrison Brothers Distillery in High, Texas. The distillery was founded by Dan Garrison. Unemployed after the Enron scandal of 2001 bankrupted the software company where he worked, Dan started writing a business plan during a tour of Kentucky distilleries. Today his bourbon is available in 32 states and 8 countries, and Garrison Brothers has won numerous awards and honors for its bourbon lineup and developed a loyal fan base. And through its charitable arm, Good Bourbon for a Good Cause, the distillery has raised more than $500,000 for veterans, hospitality workers, parks, and more. During an interview in March, Dan and I chatted about the many lessons learned from becoming the first legal distillery in Texas. But first I asked him if there's a question he wishes people asked him more often in interviews, and he brought up the challenges of distribution for craft spirits producers. And just a quick note that we started this conversation over Zoom, had a few technical glitches, and reconnected on the phone. The hardest part is getting picked up by a distributor. Uh, There are basically two distributors in the United States of America who control... 90% of all spirits that are distributed, period, in your story. So why on earth would the Public National Distributing Company or Southern Glazers pick up a brand that's selling uh, a thousand cases in three counties around their their area? Why would they even waste the time? They have to drive their trucks all the way over to the distillery to pick up the product, and then they bring it back to their warehouses. By the time they've done that, they've already spent enough more money than they could ever potentially profit from that product. So where's their incentive to do that? Where's their incentive to bring these, these, these craft producers in? And that's the biggest challenge any new craft producer is going to have. Convincing your distributor that they should get behind your brand, they should put people behind it, and that takes money. It takes a lot of money. Um, and it takes feet on the street. You should your distributor is not there to sell your product for you. You have to go sell your product. And no matter how much they tell you about being in the field and, and the rules being so difficult in each state, in, in some states, for example, you can't walk into an on-premise account without your distributor there with you. Well, why would they give you a, a person to go into an account and call an account with you? Because that person costs a lot of money every day. So let's say they're paying that person $350 a day and they're gonna go spend it with you, but they're not making $350 a day off of your product, and they won't. Even if you sold 300 cases, you probably still wouldn't profit, the distributor probably still wouldn't profit 
the $350 coverage for that one day with a rep. So you have to have your own people. You have to um, often be willing to um, break rules and regulations to get it out there, to get it in front of the buyers, to get it in front of the drinkers, to get liquid to licks. And if you're not willing to do that, if your conscience says, I'm not gonna break a state law, <laughs> got bad news for you. Uh, your product's never gonna get out there. And it's, it's, it's challenging, it's hard, and sometimes you have to cry like a big baby, which I've done many, many times publicly about the issue, just to get the attention, to get the issue, the attention it deserves. I was going to ask you later, now that FET relief is permanent for craft distillers, what you see as the, the biggest, most important issue for them. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about direct to consumer, but do you think just some fairness in distribution is, is right up there? Um, consumers want to buy products in the easiest, most comfortable, simplest environment they can. And that is direct to consumer shipping for spirits. It's that, it's that simple. So your distributors are going to clamp down on direct to consumer shipping in every state across the country. If they, if you can do direct to consumer shipping, they don't get to 35% markup. So they're going to shut it down and they are so powerful. They can shut it down. They own the legislatures in most states across this country, especially the big states like Texas. Um, they own the legislature. We have some very dynamic um, partisan legislators here in Texas who have agreed to take up bills this session at the, at the, the legislature. Um, but when they take up these bills, they kind of kind of grin at you when they do it. They agree, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, bring, it, I'll bring it up in the House. I'll, I'll bring this bill up in the House. I'll, I'll get behind it. I'll sign off on it. I'll draft it. But then they kind of snicker a little bit and go, this is never getting off the ground floor. And everybody knows it. And it's really frustrating for us. We spend so much time uh, crafting legislation that's fair. We spend so much time negotiating. We spend so much time compromising with the... Um, the distributors, the WSWA, the um, Texas Package Stores Association. And then when the bills finally hit the House floor, they get killed on, on a committee before they ever get, ever get out of committee. And nobody knows how it happens, but it happens. And it's real frustrating to watch it happen for those of us that have been behind the scenes trying to, trying to make this industry bigger, stronger, more economically vital to the state of Texas. That's all we're trying to do. We, we negotiate in good faith. We want everybody to get their piece of the pie. Um, we love the three-tier system. No question, we love the three-tier system. I'm not going to buy trucks. I'm not going to hire truck drivers. I'm not going to buy warehouses all over the state to ship my product to. I want, I want the distributors to make money. And I also want the retailers to make money off of my product. But the reality is that they shut any legislation down that changes the channel that you and get to the customer and um, and they always will as for as long as they can until consumers wake up and demand it um, I'm hearing rumors of a, a uh, Texas alcohol reform um, group that may be coming up down the road and there's a lot of big money behind that and I'm really excited about that 
I can't do it myself. I, I've given up. And frankly, at this point, I don't want to fight the legislators anymore. I, I'm done. I'm tired of having a target on my back. So I'm staying out of it um, because my brand has been wildly successful. And I'm, I've been extremely lucky to get where I have gotten. And I want my staff and my family and our friends who have invested in this business to, I want them to one day um, make some money off of our business and off of our brand. So I'm not putting my, my back out there for, for an arrow anymore. Yeah, so kind of getting now into your story, uh, was the Enron scandal one of the worst and best things that ever happened to you? <laughs> oh, that's a, for sure. I, that's definitely uh, the truth. Um, you have to reinvent yourself. You have to, um, uh, when, when you lose your job and nobody's hiring and you're out of work, you, you um, typically go into a funk, you know? Why me? What, what did I do wrong? I, I was working so hard. And, and you go into a funk and you start to lose uh, faith in your own value and your own um, effectiveness. And it's so frustrating for people. I mean, I was out of work for a very long time, probably three or four years where my wife individually funded our family and funded me and funded my dreams all at the same time. And uh, that's tough on a relationship and it's tough on one's psyche to not be the breadwinner, to not be contributing to the family. And so uh, the Enron thing really threw me for a loop because I, I had a fantastic job with a software company and I was doing really well at it. And I could tell because I kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted and I enjoyed what I did. And I was the head cheerleader for the company. And then all of a sudden, boom, our largest client goes bankrupt and we go bankrupt. And 12,000 Texans lose their jobs and I was one of them. So um, I really give a lot of credit to my wife for keeping me grounded and motivated to pursue new ideas. And that gave me the entrepreneurial freedom to go write a business plan. And I wrote one hell of a business plan and it's worked out really well for us. And, and you wrote that business plan or started writing it on a tour of Kentucky distilleries? Yeah, sure did. Yeah. Um, my wife and I were reading a newspaper article about a guy that was going to make another vodka. And my wife drinks a lot of vodka, so I was giving her shit about how tasteless and flavorless and, and um, rancid vodka is. And she said, I, I said, why doesn't somebody make bourbon, something that tastes good? And she said, well, why don't you do it? We'd probably save money in this household. And sure enough, that was the impetus I needed. That was my license to distill for my wife. And I went to Kentucky and learned the business. I met this wonderful woman named Teresa McInnitch, who was the former marketing director at Buffalo Trace Distillery. And Teresa introduced me to the big names up there, the, the Pickerels, the Samuels, the, the, the Shapiras, uh, the Colesfiends. And I got to meet some really influential people. And they were so nice and they were so accepting and they were so welcoming. And I never expected that. And I started reading the stories about, you know, the wild turkey, you know, river fire and the Heaven Hill fire that burned down all of their bear barns and destroyed their stillhouse and how the industry would come together and they would let, uh, for example, Brown Foreman started letting Heaven Hill use their facility at night just to produce alcohol and Heaven Hill was able to rebuild their entire business. Now they're the largest bourbon distillery in the world based on the volume they have in barrels. And they were able to rebuild their business from the ground up in just a few decades thanks to the help from Brown Foreman. So people helping each other out has, has always been a part of, of the bourbon industry. 
And um, I wanted in. I wanted in so bad. So I started borrowing money from everybody I knew. Give me, give me, give me, give me. I'll pay you back. It'll be 20 years, but I'll pay you back. Well, and yeah, I was, I was going to ask, is it, is it also true that a card game is partially to thank for some startup money for the distillery? So early on when I was, um, when I'd have visitors come up to the still house and uh, I'd give tours of the distillery, um, a lots, lots of stories were told. There was a story about a card game. Um, whether that was true <laughs> or not, we never let the truth get in the way of a good story at Garrison Gotcha. Brothers. Speaking of the Garrison Brothers, uh, is, it, is it just the two of you, you and Charlie? So my dad also is considered one of the Garrison Brothers. Um, okay. When the business first went bankrupt in 2008, my partner in the business had, had um, left the business and we had a buy-sell agreement in place. So I could not operate the distillery in his absence without buying out his equity uh, in the business. And my dad and my brother and my wife helped me buy out his equity. And so then we renamed the business Garrison Brothers after my dad, my brother, and my wife. My wife is not a man, but um, she's, she's definitely one of the brothers in this, this picture. Okay. Uh, well, tell, tell me a little bit about your brother, Charlie. Charlie is our uh, national accounts director. He um, has this amazing way of befriending restaurateurs and chain restaurants and getting into them, getting our, our bourbon into them in, in all sorts of bizarre ways. Just for example, one of the most exciting projects that's going on right now is with Hop Dottie. I don't know if you're familiar. Where, where are you based, John? Uh, so I'm in, I'm in North Carolina I'm in, in the Asheville area. So we have a business that was started here in, in our, not here, but in Austin, Texas, about an hour west of here. And um, that business was, was uh, it's called Hop Dottie and it's a burger bar. And it's, it's hilarious. The, it, the burgers are so good. The French fries are amazing. They've got these truffle fries. It's just, it's an old school, um, uh, they have ice cream shakes and, and, and they, they, lots of different fun things. It's, it's like an old school tavern. And, um, but it's beautiful and the burgers are absolutely amazing. And so we just started a program with them literally last week where they put in a slushy machine inside the store and it's bourbon, it's Garrison Brothers bourbon and Dr. Pepper. And it's just a constant slushy. It's, slushy. it's like drinking an ice, icy or something. Yeah. And so they're going to install those across all of their stores. And we're real excited about that. That's all due to my brother coming up with the idea for a bourbon slushy and pitching it to them. And they loved it and they put it on the menu. It's going to be an expensive bourbon slushy, but it's going to be delicious. After a break, Dan recalls some of the distillery's early struggles. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. To hear his brother Charlie Garrison tell it, Dan's initial plan for Garrison Brothers was a total pipe dream. 
but he also says that Dan's unbelievable gift in the world is that he has a vision and he holds it. But Dan admits that there was constant doubt in the early days. And just a side note here, later on Dan talks about Master Distiller Donis Todd's time in the Army. It was actually the Air Force. There was constant doubt. I mean, for five years, waiting for the barrels to mature was was doubt. How's it going to be? What's it going to taste like? Is it going to be different? Is it going to be the same? Is it going to taste just like every other Kentucky bourbon? There were constant doubts. I mean, I just couldn't sleep at night. I had, you know, all in the first couple of years, I had, you know, over a million dollars of family money invested in this process. And I couldn't sleep at night because I was afraid it was all wasted. And there was no way for me to know until I pulled that bourbon out of that, those barrels um, two or three years later. And when I did, and we started distilling about 2004, 2005, we got our federal permit to do it legally in 2007 and 2008, and our, our state permit in 2008. So that entire time, who knew? Yeah. Who knew what was going to come out of those barrels? And it was, it was a scared, I was scared shitless because I may have wasted my, my, every penny my family had, and we may be, you know, could be on the verge of bankruptcy here and, and before we even get our federal permit to distill alcohol. So it was pretty exciting when we finally brought in, uh, I think it was barrel number six. In fact, I know it was barrel number six. That was the, we, we put about 42 away in the barn and barrel number six was one of the earlier ones that we put away. And when I tasted that, I went, yeehaw, <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Not only did we create bourbon, because we didn't even know if it was going to taste like bourbon being in the Texas uh, climate and, and the terroir here. We didn't even know if it was going to taste like bourbon, but not only did it taste like bourbon, it tasted like a rich, full-bodied bourbon with texture and umami like I've never tasted before. We had – my process that I designed was very different from everything they were doing in Kentucky, from, from using sweet mash instead of sour mash to distilling at a very low proof to try to capture as much of the oils from the grain as I possibly could – single distillation run instead of a double distillation run we didn't use a thumper at all um, we just did one single run and it was typically an eight hour run trying to come off the still at about 128 proof and it was boring and it just dripped drip 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 for eight hours sitting <laughs> there yeah. watching it drip and but we, we managed to do it we we created a bourbon that in my opinion has more texture and more more body to it than anything else that's on the market today your website, you kind of hinted at this, your your website tells a tale of a very trying first summer. Um, so I was hoping you could just kind of talk a little bit of, about that first summer and then also in general, you know, what do your barrels go through in a typical year in high and how do you approach things differently than a, a place where temperatures don't reach 130 degrees in the summer? Sure. Um I had been to Kentucky so many times by the time I started buying barrels, I guess it was 2000 when I bought my first barrels and I would I would <clears throat> literally drive up to Kentucky stick the barrels in the back of my pickup truck and drive back down and fill them up so we're not talking really big volume at this point and one of the biggest challenge was I don't need a 53 gallon barrel I don't have an it would take me a week just to fill a 53 gallon barrel with the distill it with a white dog so I don't need a big barrel I need a small barrel and at the time, nobody was doing small barrels. And then I stumbled into Buffalo Trace Distillery, and somebody was giving me a tour of one of their warehouses. I think it was Freddie Johnson. And um, there's a little barrel there. And I went, holy shit, I've never seen a barrel that size. It was like a 24-gallon barrel, I believe, or maybe a 30-gallon barrel. Okay. And I thought, 
where did that come from? And sure enough, I picked that barrel up and looked on the inside to find out what Cooperage had made it. And it was Kelvin Cooperage right there in Louisville. Next day, I woke up first thing in the morning, headed over to Kelvin, met with the McLaughlin brother, brothers and said, hey, well, can you make me some barrels like th- this size? And they did. And they were, you know, one inch thick staves, traditional bourbon barrels, number four alligator char, uh, about a three minute toast is what I asked them to do on it before they charred it. And I brought those barrels back, filled them with white dog and put them in a, I couldn't afford to build a real barn at the time. So what I did is I, I rented a transatlantic shipping container that was 20 feet long and eight feet wide and eight feet tall. And I put the barrels in there, which just completely aggravated the heat issue. So I came in, you know, a couple of days after I put the barrels in there and the temperature had soared up over a hundred degrees and we were in the, right in the middle of a major drought here in Texas. So it was just dry and hot. And, um, the barrels had just popped and the, the staves had cracked and the liquid had just leaked out all over the floor of the, the barn. And it was this gooey syrupy mess on the floor oh, of the barn. <laughs> all, all the barrels were pretty much empty. So back to Kentucky, we went and we did it again. And this time I had the McLaughlin brothers build me staves that were thicker, uh, like an inch and a quarter thick. And I realized those, those staves held together. That, that was barrel number six. Um, and it held together and it didn't explode. It didn't crack because of the thicker wood. So I continued to order those more expensive barrels with the thicker staves. And then it became kind of a, 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 a any cooperage that would approach me at American Craft Spirits Association conference. And there were a couple of new cooperages getting started at the time. The Barrel Mill was one. Black Swan was one. They're, they're really great people over there at Black Swan. And we loved working with them. And they had to be able to do the thicker staves or we couldn't work with them. So um, they did, and 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 the guys at Black Swan sent me all sorts of experimental barrels that we tried to use, um, everything from from barrels that had little holes ground into them. They call them honeycomb barrels, to spiral shaved parts on the inside so that there there was more access to the to the sap and the wood, and all of those barrels we, we started getting really good at understanding what happens during the aging process and how to extract those sugars from the sap in the white American oak staves. We got really good at that. And that's what we do better. I think than than anybody else out there is understand the nature of the wood and the impact the wood can have on the the future flavor of the bourbon. And did you also ditch the shipping container? (laughs) No, actually we realized that when the temperatures are inside that shipping container reach 125 or 130 degrees, um, the bourbon is forced into the wood. It's expanding and it's forcing itself into the wood. And we popped a lot of bungs that way. Uh, you know, we, we, the, the bourbon would actually force the bung out of the top of the barrel. So it always, you always had to have the bung at, at between, you know, 10 and 2 okay. um, when it's sitting on the rick uh, because we would pop bungs all the time because the bourbon was forcing its way out. But it was also forcing its way into the wood. So we were getting – if you look at the, the, the red line inside a barrel – stave once it's all been taken apart it shows you how deep the bourbon has soaked into the the, the stave and we're, we're our bourbon was soaking all three quarters of the way into the stave wow. so we were extracting a lot more of the sugars and we realized that that was part of the success that we we were searching for because we were that that's the reason combined with the oils that come from the, the wheat and the corn and the barley and then the oils that come from the wood we 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 had something special. So you, you've got something special. You've tasted it in those early days. 
was it hard to how hard was it to sell a texas made bourbon though and and how hard was it to to find your way into distribution through throughout the years that was that was a scary part of it because then you started realizing that there's this dark side out there there's this dangerous world of of monopolies that don't necessarily want you to be able to sell direct and they will insist that you go through them even if it's more costly and so they name their price. You know, you, you say, hey, I'm going to sell it at this price. And, and because of the quality of the grain that we put into it, because of the quality of the barrels that we put into it, my price was, was higher than hell. I walked in and I said, I'm going to sell this bottle to you at 50 bucks to my, my distributors. And they laughed and they said, nobody's going to pay that much for a bottle of bourbon. Nobody's ever going to pay that much. You got to be down in the 20 to 30 range. Well, that's impossible given the ingredients that went into our bourbon. There, there's just no way. And then I met uh, Jay Johnson, president of Republic National Distributing Company, after I'd already had discussions with Southern Glazers, and they had laughed me out of the, the, the office. Um, and Jay said, I would love to sell you bourbon. Bring it, bring it on. And sure enough, he did. And he took a chance on me, and I would load up the back of my truck with cases and cases of bourbon, and I would drive to every single liquor store in the state of Texas. I would shake hands with the owner, and I'd pour a little sample for him, and they would say, hey, you know bourbon can only come from Kentucky, right? I'd say, well, sir, that's just not true. Uh, it can be made here in Texas. And I had a letter from the Tax and Trade Bureau uh, verifying that you could make bourbon in Texas. And I would show it to every single retail store owner until they finally took a chance and tasted the bourbon. And, and most of them liked it. And um, they said, you know, nobody will ever pay that much money for it. And then people started coming out to the distillery, taking tours of the distillery. I mean, not people thousands of people mm. heard about the distillery and started visiting us. And then we would give them a little sample. Thanks to governor Rick Perry helping, helping me pass some legislation back in the day that allowed us to sample. And um, once people tasted the sample, they wanted it. I wasn't allowed to sell it to them from the, from the gift shop, but I could direct them to the liquor store that happened to be a mile and a half down the road. And sure enough, it just started to sell. It got crazy. Um, at one point, I think two of my original bottles, the pre-release, which we called the Young Gun, because it was only a one-year-old bourbon, um, bottles number 11 and 12 sold from a local liquor store for $13,000 a piece. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> oil, and, oil and gas guy drove into town and said, I got to have one of this. Wow. Or, I, I got to have two of those and paid $13,000 a piece for them. On the black market, not through the liquor store. The liquor store charged him one price, and then it turned around, and uh, the liquor store was charging one price, and this guy w went to the black market and bought it. And um, I don't know how that works, or I don't follow that, and it sucks for me because I didn't get any of that money. Yeah. Um, and the government didn't get their cut on it, so uh, not real fond of that practice. Yeah. But um, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so... I guess it's kind of a common thing. You're you're opening a distillery. People start coming out of the woodwork wanting to learn about you or even looking for a job. And from everything I've read and heard, that's, you know, kind of what was going on with you, your distiller, Donis Todd. And I've, I've seen that you were kind of reluctant initially to bring somebody on. So tell me about your first memories of him. Sure. Um, I had one guy, I had one employee, his name was Fred Cook, and I was paying him an hourly wage. He was a carpenter that lived down the street for me. He used to be a, he used to be a home builder back in the day. And Fred had basically retired, and he was just doing contract carpentry work at the time. He helped build the buildings at Garrison Brothers Distillery. He was, he taught me how to hammer a nail. He taught me how to, you know, how to drive a screw. He, Fred was, 
old school German carpenter and crazy about Fred to this day. He's retired now, but I came, I went on vacation, took a week off and came back from Colorado with my family and we were passing through high and I decided I'd stop in and check on Fred and see how everything was going. And there's this dude standing in my still house. He's like six foot three, uh, muscle bound. He's got a beard down to his belly button. He's got red hair that's all the way down to his ass on the back, just long ass hair, wearing this, <laughs> this ridiculous hat. He looked like a, a Chinese rice farmer in, in this hat. And he's got tattoos all over his body. And I said, excuse me, who are you? And what are you doing in my still house? By the way, his Harley Davidson was parked on the front porch of the still house. I said, who are you? And what are you, what are you doing here in, the, in my still house? And he said, my name's Dennis Todd, and I want to make bourbon whiskey. I said, well, you can't make it here because I ain't got any money, and I can't pay you. And he said, well, I'm not going anywhere, and you look like a smart man, so I'm sure you'll figure something out. <laughs> Today, he's the best bourbon maker in America, in my opinion. And he has a reputation internationally as one of the best whiskey makers in the world. And I taught him how to he, – he knew how to distill from his Army days. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, when you spend time in the Army, you learn how to make your own booze. But he, so he knew how to distill – but he didn't know how to make bourbon. So I, I got a chance to take him to Kentucky a couple of times and teach him how to make bourbon. And he got a chance to meet some of the legends in the business. And together, the two of us have, have done it. Um, you know, I'm sitting here looking at my, my countertop, and I've got a little bottle that says Guadalupe, 107 proof. And this has been a project that Donis and I have been working on since we released Estacado, which was the, our first port cask finished bourbon. And the Guadalupe is, I think, in my opinion, the best thing we've ever made. And that will be released this June. Can't yeah, wait. That, I, I talked to him the other day, and he he mentioned that he, he feels like that has the potential to be another cowboy, Balmeray, honeydew, where he just can't, you guys can't make enough of it. Yeah, it, it's definitely going to be a, a unicorn, hard to find. Um, we'll probably release maybe 3,000 bottles on June 24, I think is the day that we have planned. And they'll be gone that, that that day. People will start showing up a day or two before the release time. The release will be on a Saturday morning at 8. We'll open the gates to the ranch. And there will be trucks lined up all the way down the highway to Highway 290, two, two miles away. And the night before, I'll show up with a couple of bottles in the back of my pickup and just drive up and down in my Polaris Ranger and hand out shots to everybody along the road. They'll have tents set up. They'll all be playing cards out on the, out on the road. Um, it's, 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 it's family. Uh, I, I definitely, I want to talk to you some more about those, those drive up things, but I do want to, um, talk a little bit more about Donis. How, how would you describe the dynamic between the two of you? So he runs the entire facility now. Um, in the old days, shit would break, you know, <laughs> shit breaks every day and pumps. Uh, we were right now, we're, we don't have enough water to make bourbon. Because one of our wells during the freeze, we think that the propeller down in the well, the, the, the prop may have broken or, or been damaged. So, so things are always breaking. And it was always my responsibility to figure out how to get them fixed. We used to call consultants. We used to call people to come on out and help us take, you know, when a boiler blows up, <laughs> it's not something that I, I don't rebuild boilers for a living. It's kind of a technical uh, activity. But we started doing that. We started saying, you know what? Enough with the consultants. We can't afford consultants. Let's just take this thing all the way down to its screws and its bolts, and let's let's figure out how it works. And so that's what we used to do back in the day is just break everything down, 
built, rebuild it back together and replace anything that looked like it was damaged. And that's how we keep the distillery afloat and keep it alive and keep it working. And Donis is better than anyone at that. And so he can, he can fix any piece of equipment. He knows where every plumbing line is. He knows where every electrical line is at the distillery. So he's Mr. Fix it. Um, Johnny on the spot when we had, you know, seven, eight days of freeze and people couldn't even drive down highway 290 to get to our distillery. Donna showed up every single day, uh, you know, five o'clock in the morning going two miles an hour on, on the ice. And he was there for, for like nine days straight, uh, working with our all around cowboy Russell who helps him out and they kept the place going. So that's what he does best. The other thing he does well is he understands wood and he understands the effects wood can have on the bourbon and I'm going to drink some of this Guadalupe that's in front of me later on this afternoon once I go for a run. But it's, it, it, he's an amazing bourbon maker. He, he gets the chemistry nature of what's involved with Fear for All, Gaiacol, Oak, Lactone, Vanilla, and Isoeugenol, and Eugenol. He understands how those things work together. And he also understands different properties from different types of wood, like uh, French oak versus, versus white American oak. Where would Garrison Brothers be without him? Oh, we better shut down long ago. Really? He he jumps in and he he takes over a project. Um, I'll be out on the road selling, and we'll have to build a new barn. And Donis just he he's the construction foreman on the project. He he gets it done, and he gets it done on time and under budget every single time. So there's no way that I can constantly be there to do that anymore. I'm 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 doing, you know, a bourbon dinner tomorrow night at the University of Texas Club in Austin. And I've got bourbon dinners in Florida for the next two weeks. So I can't be at the distillery and run the distillery. I have to have someone to count on to do that. And that's what Donis does. He, he's, he's our distillery director as well as our master distiller. After a final break, Dan walks us through the Garrison Brothers portfolio and discusses the distillery's charitable efforts. Registration is now open for the American Craft Spirits Association's annual Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show. We hope you'll join us in Louisville, Kentucky this December 4th through 6th to network, learn, and toast the craft spirits industry. To sign up and take advantage of early bird pricing, head to AmericanCraftSpirits.org. And while you're there, you can also register for a public policy conference in late May. Thanks. For anyone who hasn't had the opportunity to try Garrison Brothers Whiskey, or even for those who'd like a refresher, I asked Dan to give us a quick description of each product in the distillery's lineup. We're in uh, 32 uh, states in America today, and we're seven foreign countries. And uh, the two primary products that you'll see in stores, like um, every Total Wine and More store around the country, for example, will have our small batch bourbon whiskey. That's a combination of 55 barrels that are married together every single week. Uh, they're married together, they're stirred up, and then they're bottled, uh, those 55, the liquid from those 55 barrels. That's our small batch bourbon whiskey. It's got a black wax seal on it. Um, it's always going to be a minimum of four years old. The second thing that you'll see in stores is what's called Garrison Brothers Single Barrel. Single Barrel is sold two ways. The difference between the small batch bourbon is the small batch bourbon has a flavor profile that could be described as chocolate, vanilla, um, caramel, butterscotch. Um, and, and velvet cake. It's that. It's it's that. It's a sugary, beautiful, consistent product. The 
single barrels, whenever we taste a barrel that has strange flavors coming off of it, like figs or nutmeg or cinnamon, things that don't necessarily fit the small batch profile, we set those aside for our single barrel program. And the single barrel is kind of fun because you can actually come out to the distillery and select your own barrel, bottle your own barrel with your friends, and then we'll ship it to your favorite liquor store where you buy it. Um, or you can, you can do it at barrel proof, which is right out of the cask, you know, 100, 140 proof. Or you could do it at 94 proof, your choice. And we also sell the single barrel to liquor stores as a six-pack sampler. So there'll be six bottles in a case, and each of those bottles comes from an individual barrel, separate barrel. That's the single barrel. You'll find that in most stores across the country today, both of those products. The two most exciting products that we've introduced, and we're trying to get up to uh, brand level, meaning that they're constantly in stores, is Honeydew, which is my wife's bourbon, and that was a great project. We select barrels that have honey properties already. That, that we're, we're, the flavor profile is exuding honey already. And then we take that bourbon and we dump it into a 2,000-gallon tank, and then we take all of the barrels that the bourbon came from, chop them up into these tiny little cubes we call honey cubes, and the cubes weigh about an ounce. And then we immerse them in a vat, a 55-gallon drum full of Burleson's wildflower honey. So the cubes go in weighing one ounce. They come out weighing about four ounces because they've absorbed all of this honey from the Burleson's. And then we make a giant tea bag out of cheesecloth. And we dip that tea bag into the, to the vat full of bourbon uh, for about six months just to infuse that bourbon with, with honey. And what I love about it most is it's not <laughs> – it is not a syrupy, sappy, gooey mixture like your beam honey or your 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 jack honey. It's 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 so bourbon forward, but then the honey is is your finish. You'll you'll taste all bourbon until you swallow, and then when you swallow and open up your mouth, you're going to taste honey all over your mouth. And I love that bourbon. My that wife sounds beautiful. Yeah. To, she's been encouraging me to do this for about 15 years, but she wanted a cordial. She wanted a liqueur. And we wouldn't do that because we're a bourbon distillery and all we'll ever make is bourbon. It's gotcha. beautiful. The other one, the other one is Balmeray. Balmeray is aged for four years in the new white American oak barrel from a cooperage in the Ozark that, that buys wood from the Ozarks. And then um, it's aged for another two years in a new white American oak barrel that uses wood from Minnesota. So completely different chemical properties in, in the Balmeray. Balmeray is a state park out in West Texas, and this remind this bourbon reminded me of the shimmering waters of this beautiful crystal clear state park. Uh, the pool is about three acres out in West Texas, and when you buy a bottle of Balmeray, we're giving money to Texas Parks and Wildlife to help rebuild uh, Balmeray State Park. Balmeray is gorgeous. Balmeray has been the American Whiskey of the Year and Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible for three years in a row, and we won double gold in San Francisco for it last year. So I think it's I think it's the, the, the finest bourbon we've ever made. I can't afford it, but other people can. So they get to pick. <laughs> Annually, we release Garrison Brothers Cowboy Bourbon in September. That's our barrel cask strength version of the small batch. It runs anywhere from 133 proof up to 145 proof, and it's it's got chunks of wood and charcoal floating in it. We recommend you decant it before you drink it, just so you don't get splinters down your throat. And then we have about three or four more what we call special releases that we just release one day out of the year, like Guadalupe, which will be coming up in June. Um, those three or four releases are the special releases that everybody lines up at the distillery to get their hands on. Yeah. And so I know one of those last year, uh, 
was the Laguna Madre, and, and you, you kind of turned that into a COVID-19 fundraiser. T- tell me a little bit more about Operation Crush COVID-19 and also Good Bourbon for a Good Cause. And, and just, you know, you kind of hinted at it with the, the Balmeray, but you, you, you folks are, uh, you know, just seems like you're, you're trying to do a lot with charitable efforts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess around 2014, 2015, I started doing tastings at liquor stores, and at, at uh, I would do bourbon pairing dinners at restaurants with, with you know, famous chefs, and they would pair my bourbons with different courses that were served at the dinners. And one one particular chef, I think it was uh, John Bennell in Fort Worth, or maybe it was Robert Del Grande down in Houston. Anyway what they, they were charging $200 a plate. And I was like, wow, holy shit, $200 a plate to, to attend this hundred person bourbon dinner with where the chef is serving you and the bourbon maker serving you. That seemed a little outrageous to me. And the bourbon dinner completely sold out in a matter of hours. And there was a waiting list. And I went, holy shit, people will spend a lot of money to come drink bourbon and have a great meal and hear stories. Cause that's all I do is I stand up each, when each course is served and I tell them a story. And then the chef will come out and tell them a story and the, the bar manager will come out and tell them a story. And it's so fun and it creates this unbelievable community. And so what I started doing is going forward, whenever a chef or a, a restaurant would approach me and ask me to do a pairing dinner with them, I would say yes, but only if we'll give some money to charity. And they'd say, I love that idea. And people will actually pay more if they know it's going to a good cause. So we formed a public charity, a 501c3 public charity called Good Bourbon for a Good Cause back in uh, 2017. And we've raised somewhere in the neighborhood of a, a, a million dollars maybe so far for important causes that, that, that are near and dear to my staff and my family and our, our employees and our friends. And those causes are veterans issues, uh, veterans suffering from PTSD, um, we try to help out wherever we can there. Uh, the second big issue for us is healthcare for the hospitality industry. I went up to California a while back and we went and met with a bartender who was going to try the bourbon. At, I think it was in Huntington Beach, California, and he came in on crutches. And we were like, dude, what'd you do to your leg? He said, I broke it last Wednesday. And there's no cast on his leg. Mm. <laughs> and, and we're like, why don't you have a cast on your leg? You have to, you've got a broken bone. You've got to get a cast. You've got to get it. And he didn't do it because he couldn't afford it. And that's crazy. So right. part of what we're trying to do through cocktails for a cause, which is a, kind of a, a, a sub program underneath get bourbon for a good cause is we're working with a couple of restaurants and they will put cocktails for a cause on their menu with a little logo next to it that shows the cocktails for a cause logo and then on the bottom of the, the page, it says every time you buy this cocktail, $1 of this money goes to Good Bourbon for a Good Cause from this restaurant. We donate $1. And Garrison Brothers matches that dollar for dollar. The idea is every single restaurant that participates th- in this and puts cocktails for a cause on their menu, they will have their own health care fund that they can give to their employees. It can be a, a safety net for their employees should they ever get sick or, or unhealthy. And we'll donate all that money back to the restaurant um, for their use. We're also going to meet with other distillers and, and distilled spirits companies. You know, I'm going to go talk to my friend Tito Beverage and see if I can rope him into this. And we'll go talk to Diageo and Pernod Ricard and all the big guys. If everybody was doing this, we could have a healthcare program in place for hospitality industry workers in, in less than a year with a substantial amount of money behind it. 
behind it. So I think it's a good idea, and I want to spread that that idea. The third thing that's important to us is wide open spaces, parks, um, wild wild places, and that's why we, why we get involved with Texas Parks and Wildlife to help protect Balmoray State Park. So that's what Good Bourbon for a Good Cause is all about. When we were about to release um, our latest special release problem project, which was called Laguna Madre, named after the Gulf Coast waters of Texas, um, we decided to do a complete right turn. We were going to release it to liquor stores and bars and restaurants, and we already had a plan. We already knew what restaurants we were going to get, how many bottles they were going to get, what they were going to pay for. We had a cost program in place. And then COVID comes along literally two weeks before we were about to release all of these these bottles. And my staff and I got together and we said, you know what, let's do something a little different. Let's just sell these bottles from the distillery and let's not sell them for the $299 price point we were planning on selling it because this is the oldest bourbon we've ever made. It's an eight-year-old bourbon and it uses limousine oak in addition to to, um, white American oak. And it's the most beautiful thing we've ever made. And so we decided instead we would ask people to make a thousand dollar contribution to good bourbon for a good cause. And in exchange for the thousand dollar contribution to the, to the nonprofit, they would get a bottle of Laguna Madre. They would get a bottle of honeydew and they would get a bottle of our boot flask bourbon, but they had to come to the distillery to, 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 to uh, pick up their bottles. Um, So we, we weren't selling the bourbon. We didn't sell the bourbon. We gave it away in exchange for a contribution. We raised, Almost four hundred thousand dollars. I think. Well, actually, I think it was over four hundred thousand dollars. And all amazing. of that money went went to bartenders, chefs, servers who were out of work and because of COVID. And um, it was the right thing to do. Yeah, uh, I guess speaking of the right thing to do, I, I think uh, I, I thought I saw or heard that after you know, right after the pandemic hit. I know you guys were making hand sanitizer, but but did you also make a call to cease? bourbon production for a while just to avoid laying folks off and talk, talk me through we did. that decision. And- our, our, our strategy was at all to protect our employees from getting sick at all costs. And so what we did is we would feed them breakfast and lunch every single day if they were here at, at the, on the ranch. And we, we not only encouraged, but we insisted that they not go out. Don't you go out to a restaurant. Don't you go out to a bar. We don't want you to be infected because if you get infected and it spreads to my entire team, then we can't make bourbon anymore. So what we did is we used to have – well, we still do. In fact, today we have 30 volunteers at the distillery who are bottling bourbon for us, and we canceled all of those volunteer um, bottler days. And we instead took our production staff and turned them into bourbon bottlers. And they were there every single day, and it created this amazing sense of camaraderie amongst my team. And everybody got to know each other really well, and we kept them from getting sick. You know, I don't think we had one confirmed case of COVID on our entire team because we kept them at the distillery all the time. Some people would sleep there. They wouldn't even go home um, for about six months. And that was a long time. And you know, we were spending $20,000 on meals every single day. And one of us would go to the, the gate and we would meet some restaurateur that had cooked us all food that day. And we'd write him a check at the gate and, and they would never, nobody, nobody came on the property except for our staff. So we didn't risk getting an infection. That's great. So I, I guess now that, you know, things are slowly starting to get back to normal. Obviously, Texas lifted its its mask mandate. You kind of alluded to doing some some dinners coming up, and I, I've I've seen on your website that you guys are starting to 
to go back into in-store tastings. Um, what's what's your, uh, I guess, your approach on those right now? What kind of precautions are you still taking, and, and what kind of advice do you have for other distilleries that are starting to wade back in into those types of things? Get vaccinated, one. Get vaccinated. Keep wearing masks for the time being until until we have you know, herd immunity, which seems to be happening really fast. I've already had my first vaccination. I go back for my second on April 2nd. And it's weird. Once you get vaccinated, you suddenly feel like you're bulletproof again. You're not afraid to be around people. Um, so definitely get vaccinated. I encourage everybody to get vaccinated. Um, we are going to wear masks. I'm going to wear masks at my dinners. Um, I try to stand at least 10 feet away from the nearest table. And I, I'm fortunate to have a big, loud booming voice at these dinners so everybody can hear what I'm saying even when I've got a mask on. Um, people are coming out of the woodwork. Um, our prediction is that in May, June timeframe, the world is going to explode and everybody's going to be coming out of the woodwork to go out to bars and restaurants and see old friends and go to resorts and hotels and travel. Um, so we think that there's going to be a, an economic boom uh, this starting this summer that will run all the way through the fall and the the economy is going to it's going to bust open, and it's going to be a real exciting thing for for not just America but the world, I think. And so we we that's it that's our prediction. We think that's what's going to happen. And I'm also on the board of the Texas Restaurant Association, and they're all predicting the same thing. You know, 35 percent of restaurants in Texas are out of business, gone. Yeah. So the other 65% is going to be the beneficiary of this explosion. The folks that are still around, the folks that have somehow managed to keep their employees. Over 750,000 restaurant workers in Texas have lost their jobs and have gone to different industries. So we got to figure out how to bring people back to this wonderful industry of, of, of running restaurants. And so we're working very hard to do that. We're working hard to train people and to make this a career move as opposed to a sedentary, you know, one-time job, which it's often been viewed at. Restaurant workers have always been on the fringe. You know, they, yeah. <laughs> they don't, they don't have healthcare. They, they work strange hours. Uh, it's almost impossible to have children. If you, if you, if you're a bartender or a cook or a chef or a server, uh, because you can't get home at night. So, um, it's always been a fringe industry and we're working very hard to make it a profession. That's awesome. Um, I, uh, I did want to kind of go back to the, to the drive up, uh, releases that you all do. I'm, I'm curious, was that, uh, I, I guess, were they, did you see more of an uptick in people during the pandemic because it is such a, like a friendly, like drive up type of thing? Um, or was this was the spirit any in any way diminished, and are you just super excited for a, a post COVID world where those things kind of go back to normal? Sure. Uh, during the pandemic, we 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 first of all, our, our distillery is, is on a sixty eight acre ranch, and all and there's maybe forty picnic tables out there in the hospitality area, which is maybe ten acres. And it's spread out. So all the picnic tables are under these enormous, beautiful live oak trees. And they're all separate, 20, 30 yards. There's no, there's no, nobody's close to each other. Yeah. We still insisted that everybody wear a mask. We put hand sanitizer that we made ourselves on every single table. Um, we put in a QR code system so people could go directly to their chairs, take off their masks and order from their phone. And the food would be delivered directly to their table. So there wasn't any interaction. There wasn't 
no, there wasn't a line at the at the whiskey shack, which is our restaurant. Um, there was never a line. People would order directly from their seats. So people came out and they told us that they felt safer there than any other place they'd ever been because we were distancing, we were social distancing, and there was, you know, there's always a breeze blowing and you're outdoors. There's no indoor facility at Garrison Brothers. It's all outdoors. So that was, it was, it was the perfect environment. Nevertheless, we got shut down because uh, distilleries got classified as, as bars. Yeah. And so when the bars got shut down, we got shut down too. And um, I know this is going to go on air, but in direct defiance of the governor's orders, we kept doing it because we, our people need money and our family, the families that work for us need money. Yeah. So they need to get paid and they need to have a job. And we didn't want to lose any of them because we also wanted to qualify for the PPP funding, which we did. So we didn't lose a single employee uh, during COVID and um, we were able to get through it and, the uh, future's so bright. I gotta wear shades. <laughs> well, I, I was I was actually going to to shift to that now. Uh, the future in general. Are there are there any? You've already talked about Guadalupe, but are are there any other products you're working on, or just anything in general that uh, you're excited to share and want to want to talk about? The relationship that I have with Donis is, is the most special part of it is uh, the creativity. If it ever gets dull, if we're ever doing the same thing over and over again every day, he and I will both quit and walk off into the sunset because we got to be we got to be experimenting. We got to be doing something new all the time, or we get burned out. And so, I've got a couple of you know things up my sleeve. I've got a barrel that I just bought, $500 barrel that has uh, been aging coffee in it for over a year, coffee beans. Oh, wow. Can't wait to put some bourbon in there and see what happens there. So that's going to happen within the next week or two. I haven't even told Donis about this yet. Um, (laughs) I also have uh, an order of champagne barrels coming uh, that have aged champagne for about four years. And we're actually, this is going to sound nuts, but we're actually thinking about um, in, in, injecting CO2 into the bourbon to give it uh, bubbles. So it might be the first ever bubbly bourbon. Why not? Um, yeah, sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? Yeah. Age the, age the bourbon for four more years in champagne barrels and then uh, put a cork in it and, and pop that cork right off like a yeah. champagne bottle. Yeah. Kind of, kind of excited about that too. Plus, I think the the uh, CO2 will help give it some fizz. So it'll be a very different bourbon. I drink my bourbon with club soda often, and that's the way I like it. Cause it's got a little bit of fizz to it. A little bit of cuts the cuts the proof down a little, make, make sure I don't get drunk in public. And um, that'll be kind of fun to have it come right out of a bottle like that. So those are just like two of the, the dream projects that I'm working on. I don't know when I'm going to find time to actually do these, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll We'll work on it. Gotcha. What What's your ratio on the the bourbon and club soda? Uh two thirds bourbon, one third club soda. Okay, good to know. What is the most important thing you want people to know about Garrison Brothers? Giving back is good. If you make money at your business, fantastic. But that's not why you're in business. You're in business to give people careers, to give people health care to give people a purpose, to lead by example. That's what running a business is all about. It's the, being an entrepreneur and starting your own business is the biggest step you'll ever take in your life. 
Um, but once you do it, there's no going back. Even if you fail, you fail trying greatly. And so um, try it, but give back because people need help. Nothing feels better than giving back. Yeah, I guess especially now more than ever after this last year that oh, yeah. we've all been through. Hence the reason for good bourbon for a good cause. Absolutely. It gives us a vehicle to give back. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think I got you saying good bourbon can change the world, Dan, and I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little upset. So here's our philosophy behind good bourbon for a good cause. I see it every day. We have 30 volunteers that show up at the distillery. And they're all nervous. And they're all looking around the room and they're eyeing each other suspiciously. That guy looks like he may be a lawyer. That guy over there has tattoos all over him. That girl has piercings to every part of her body. She's a little scary looking. And everybody's got their, their backs up, you know, the, the hair on the back of their neck standing up a little bit. And then we give them breakfast in the morning. We give them lunch in the afternoon and a shot of courage every half hour to keep them motivated. And by one o'clock in the afternoon, they're all having lunch together. Um, they're all making dinner plans in town. They're all getting each other's phone numbers and emails addresses, and they're taking pictures of each other. And they're dancing around the room to country music and having a great time. And so I have seen it. Good bourbon can change the world. Good bourbon creates enduring, lasting friendships. Good bourbon uh, can increase one's faith in man and God. Good bourbon uh, creates legendary stories. That's the philosophy behind good bourbon for a good cause. And I see it every day. That's our program for today. Thanks again to Dan Garrison for speaking with us. You can learn more about the distillery at garrisonbrothers.com. You can also read a profile on Garrison Brothers in the latest issue of Craft Spirits Magazine, which you can find and subscribe to for free at craftspiritsmag.com. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers. Cheers.